the Christian perspective ought to create the, the most comprehensive empathy that's possible. What that means is that we should be able to put ourselves in other shoes. Now, this is not just uh, for the sake of morals. This is because the Christ himself is the ultimate empathizer. Like our whole religious tradition is based on the incarnation. It's based on God himself being able to identify with man and not just man, not the highest of men, but the lowest of men. And so we should expect that where God is at work in a people, he is creating a capacity for empathy. Father, we come before you today thanking you for another day in which we could work, which we could study, read, do whatever, all for your honor and your glory. Lord, I pray that as we come um, to this time now, Lord, that um, Brother Matthew may speak clearly and articulately and that we may be impressed and burdened with this topic um, for us, Lord. Please be with Matthew as he as he speaks, Father, over the next over the next number of minutes. In your holy name. Amen. Amen. I, I've had a bunch of conversations lately about Zionism. Um, there was a recent intifada, uh, another one uh, uh, that lasted for 11 days. And whenever that happens, whenever there's a, an uptick in, in um, violence in Israel, especially Palestinian violence, there's a lot of conversation that happens in the Christian community about the Christian perspective of modern Israel. And, and I find that a lot of the conversations that I have with people, the problem is not so much that we have differing views as much as people don't understand either the implications or the origins of their ideas. Like there's, there's not a lot of people that understand the perspective that they're presenting and where it comes from. Uh, a little bit of personal background. I, I grew up in uh, a dispensational uh, environment and church um, I was an early adopter of the Left Behind series. I read them uh, voraciously. I would wait for them to come out in print and gobble them up as quick as I could. Um, my, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher, and he spoke often on Israel and the covenant promises. And for him, especially the friend of Israel is the friend of God. Whoever blesses them will be blessed by God, and whoever curses them will be cursed by God. And he really attributed in no small part, American exceptionalism and America's quote unquote blessings from God to the friendly uh, diplomatic relations that the U S had with, with modern Israel. So these things run deep in American evangelicalism. And I want to talk about first where they come from and second, what the implications of those ideas are. So, so let's dig in. This is uh, John Nelson Darby. He's known as the father of dispensationalism or the grandfather, if you will. He was born in uh, 1800, um, died in 82. He was a part of the Plymouth Brethren. And 
in the 30s, the 1830s, that is, the Brethren movement, uh, Mr. Mr. Darby was in England, the Brethren movement started doing these things they were calling prophecy conferences. Um, it's worth backing up a little bit and considering the 19th century generally, because we find, uh, like, in, in Western Christianity, the 19th century is really interesting, especially from the middle of the century to the end of it, for its uh, occultism, for its uh, sects, and, and uh, particularly doomsday cults. And there's something in the air in the, in the mid to the late 19th century that really is stoking up this, um, uh, especially eschatological ideas, you know, um, a lot of the, a lot of the founders of modern day movements are coming from this era in the Western churches, uh, Ellen G white, um, a lot, the seventh day stuff is all coming from the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. So, uh, you had doomsday cults, you know, that were selling all their stuff. There was a rise in, in, in communitarianism and communalism, there's something radical that's happening in Christianity in the 1900s. I mean, in the 1800s. And this is where, this is the, the environment that Darby is, is, is living in and stoking in his own ways. Um, Darby in these prophecy conferences starts talking about these, time periods he's what he's doing is and we'll talk more about the specifics of dispensationalism as a as a whole ideology but but where it begins for darby is talking about breaking up the the bible the history of the bible the history of god's revelation into what he these time periods or dispensations um there there are generally recognized and again we'll go over this in a little more detail at a later slide but it's generally recognized that there's seven dispensations. And so you think of those dispensations of like epochs of revelation or this, this way that God had of dealing with men within that time. So the patriarchal era is a dispensation. The, the mosaic era is a dispensation. The pre patriarchal phase is a dispensation. So he has, he has these periods broken up and a lot of his ideas derive from this notion of these time divisions in the Bible. Uh, Mr. Darby visited uh, the U.S. in the late 1850s, I think it was 1859, and was here for quite some time. And he became quite popular, um, particularly with the Baptists and the Presbyterians, but in, with the fundamentalists in general. Uh, Schofield was an early disciple and still was the Dallas Theological founder. And... Um, and really, for the, for the fundamentalists, the early fundamentalist movement of the early 20th century, uh, dispensationalism was the prevailing view in, in, in the American churches, at least the Protestant American churches. One of his early disciples uh, and a man who popularized dispensationalism in the U.S. is... Schofield. Uh, Schofield um, printed a, a, a Bible that's still in use in dispensational circles today, the Schofield Reference Bible. Th their their um, take on dispensationalism and why it matters and why it grabs a hold uh, is, is really um, 
this early fundamentalist movement sees religious liberalism, especially in Europe, and the Americans kind of want to distinguish themselves as not like that. And so uh, I don't want to read too much into it, but there's a way to view all of this as eschatological in, in, in this sense. The, the European, quote-unquote, liberals were very post-millennial, uh, and even, even some of the early revivalists were post-millennials in the West. And, and there was an association between post-millennialism and liberality. And so the American school of early fundamentalists wanted to establish themselves and saw premillennialism as the answer to the post-millennials liberalism. So, so they really grabbed a hold of dispensationalism and it became the, the, like I said before, the prominent position and it moved all the way across the fundamentalist circles in America. Now, there is some differences between Schofield and Darby. Um, Darby had a whole, uh, a whole component to his school of thought that included an ecclesiology. Um, it had to do primarily with the Mosaic Covenant being the, the way that the earth was supposed to be run. Like it was the last dominant uh, um, way for the world to run uh, until the second advent. And so um, that ecclesiology isn't, isn't always recognized or represented in American dispensationalism. But the Americans certainly grabbed a hold of the eschatology and the soteriology, the, the future events and how revelations was going to play out the pre-tribulation rapture. All of those things are wholeheartedly embraced in reformed circles, originally with the Baptists and the Presbyterians, but then it kind of becomes predominant among American reformed people. Moody was an early uh, adherent and the Schofield reference Bible came out in 1909 and it flew off the shelves. Lewis Schaefer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary, was also an early adherent in America of dispensationalism. This guy's Henry Ironsides. He's a revivalist preacher and uh, is of some note to me personally. Uh, my grandfather, who was a Baptist preacher, was, was converted from listening to Henry Ironsides. Uh, so my grandfather had a special love for for Mr. Ironside. Um, he traveled a, a good bit, and and this early 20th century uh, revivalist Billy Sunday in the Prohibition era and Henry Ironsides were were very prominent revivalist preachers, and um, and Mr. Ironside wholeheartedly embraced dispensationalism. Um, and especially the pre-tribulation rapture and how that fit into eschatology. Why he's here in this slideshow is not just because uh, of his personal relevance to my family, but, but when he wrote about dispensationalism, he was very honest in the fact that this was a novel idea. In other words, the idea, especially the pre-tribulation rapture, was completely novel in the history of Christianity. So I wrote out this quote here from Mr. Ironside. It says, you can read along with me, to search as this writer has in measure done the remarks of the so-called fathers pre and post Nicene, the theological treatises of the scholastic divines, Roman Catholic writers of all shades of thought, 
the literature of the Reformation, the sermons and expositions of the Puritans, the general theological works of the day, and he will find that mystery, that mystery is means the pre-tribulation rapture, conspicuous by its absence. So here we have Mr. Ironsides recognizing and admitting that this important idea that, that the early fundamentalists were embracing didn't have any historical roots. I appreciate that he's at least honest with that. You know, something being new doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but it has some major difficulties to overcome in Christian theology. So let's talk a little bit about some of these tenets of dispensationalism. One of the main ideas that's coming from the dispensationalist narrative is hermeneutical. So those ideas of the ages, uh, the dispensations, they're, they're kind of a central feature of dispensationalism. But really, like most things in, in, in church doctrine, it has much more to do with the hermeneutics that is deriving this, the ideas than the ideas themselves. And in dispensationalism, if you want to understand where it's coming from, uh, it is essential for the dispensationalists to see the Old Testament narrative as complete as the author of the Old Testament understood it. So, so, so to put that in, in, in a little more understandable terms, whatever's written in the Old Testament means exactly what it meant to that author and to that audience. Uh, the New Testament cannot add, alter, adjust, fulfill, or change in any way or sense what the passage meant to the author and its original audience, or the dispensationist claims that God is a liar and didn't keep his promise or was deceiving the Jews or a whole host of, uh, like there's a whole basket of, of, of kind of uh, cliches that go along. So, so whenever you're reading as a dispensationalist some promise in the Old Testament uh, or prophetic narrative, it has to mean for you exactly what it meant for Jeremiah's audience. Now, this creates some incredible difficulties with the text, as maybe you can already anticipate, um, <laughs> not least of which the whole book of Galatians, but but I don't want to. I don't want to strawman this. Let's look at some real, practical examples. Where this leaves dispensational thought is that the misunderstandings of the Jews and the disciples—they were using this exact hermeneutic. Like the 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 Pharisees, when they say, uh, "Go and read," no no prophet arises from Nazareth is using this exact hermeneutic template. Like it has to mean exactly what it's what it says, and there can't be any variation. We must understand it as it is. Uh, think of Jesus's discourse about the temple and switching, tear down this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. The idea that Jesus was using the word temple and meaning himself and his body and his own death and resurrection is incompatible. And that's a big deal. It's incompatible with dispensational notions. Um, what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ and the basic misunderstanding of the disciples that his primary obligation as the Messiah was 
to restore physical Israel. And Jesus's insistence that that's not what his, what his role is, that it's much, much bigger than Israel. It's the, it's the tearing down of the middle wall partition and all the things that Hebrews talks about. Um, these, these are what Jesus has at the root of his identity and ministry. And everyone around him is misunderstanding and thinking that he's talking about the geopolitical borders of Israel and getting rid of the Romans. Well, the, our dispensationalist friends are at the same exact place. That, that's actually what they're advocating, that, that it is all about physical Israel. It is all about the geopolitical land. And we can't have any kind of framework where we're understanding in new light what the Old Testament passages mean. One wonders how uh, ideas like the kingdom uh, and, and, for instance, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the point down strongholds. We see this confusion in dispensational circles all over the place. Nationalism, Zionism, uh, rejecting non-resistance, and the Sermon on the Mount broadly, those are all pushed out into the future epoch of the millennium. They aren't really relevant, except for some kind of eschatological hope. They aren't really relevant to the life of the disciple here and now. It's still, it's still a land grab. It's still about the physical, the physical land of Israel. Um, we see, you know, you can you can dismantle this this hermeneutic of dispensationalism if you just do a word search in the Old Testament on forever. Uh, according to our dispensationalist friends, wherever forever is in the Old Testament, it has to mean forever. Well, what about circumcision? You know, if if God is saying in the Old Testament dispensation that circumcision is a covenant forever and the New Testament is claiming that it's not for the church, how does that make sense? How can circumcision be forever and not be for all of God's people? That that it's a, it's almost irreconcilable. Um, just all kinds of cases, but I just pulled a few. Uh, Psalm 74, this language of the Psalms, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Well, did God in Psalms and Psalm 74 cast off Israel forever? Did he never have anything to do with them again? I mean, you can say, you know, a dispensationalist might say to that, well, that's poetic language, but, but how often are they appealing to that same poetic language over the promises of Israel and its, its, its permanence? Psalms 89, 35 is a really good example. Now, here we have a psalm which is poetic, but it's making a specific claim about the Davidic throne. It says, once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and is as a faithful witness in heaven. Now for the dispensationalist, that throne has to be the physical throne of David in the physical country, nation of Israel. Well, where has that been? Uh, if it hasn't been, if there isn't a literal throne of David in the promised land forever, then obviously we need to have some other metric for understanding what these promises mean. Now, it's not difficult if you reject dispensationalism and say, well, the, the line of David through the Messiah establishes his throne forever, but that doesn't work in the dispensational framework. <clears throat> I hope you can see the problem with that, that hermeneutic. Here is a, a classic... Um, chart from the Schofield Reference Bible, highlighting these seven dispensations. Uh, what you'll see here is that, I don't, it's blurry because I, I blew it up so big, but 
you have right there, the third dispensation is the post-Diluvian dispensation. That's human. Um, he marks it as human government. The patriarchal disp- dispensation is the fourth, and the fifth is the legal dispensation. I think that um, this, this understanding has been particularly uh, utilized by Reformed people because I think since Calvin and Luther, these very linear formulaic equations for understanding the Bible, uh, Westerners in general, moderns in general, and especially Western Reformed Christians really geek out on these kinds of like reductionist ways of understanding, like put in a chart, make it flow, show me the pieces and that's good. So if you'll notice here in this, um, you have the cross there, the first advent, the sixth dispensation there in Schofield's chart, it splits. You have the nations on the bottom And then you have the mystery form of the kingdom on the top. So, so all the way going back to Darby, he has kind of like two ways of organizing God's redemptive framework. The they're on two separate tracks. And that's the way I think that we should think of dispensationalism. And I don't think that's being dishonest with it. I think that, that our dispensationalist friends would agree with this, that there are two tracks of God's redemptive history um, they were one in Israel uh, through this, the legal dispensation, and then they split. The notion is that the church um, is parenthetical. Like the church isn't the main attraction from the redemptive history. God started with Abraham. Abraham's the point and his seat is the point, And they weren't getting it. They were rejecting Messiah. And at that point, there's kind of like a pause in the prophetic narrative of Israel and the church is born or the age of grace, the dispensation of grace or the age of the church it's called as well. And there's different ways of talking about this. Sometimes, uh, oftentimes it's, it's, it's talked about in the form of provoking Israel to jealousy from Romans. Uh, And, and the idea is that, God pauses the prophetic narrative of Israel to bring in the Gentile church so that Israel will recognize what they missed out on. And we kind of like by luck, um, by luck of time being living in a post-Christian world, uh, happen to get in on this, uh, this ability to provoke Israel through our connection to the Jewish Messiah. But the other track of Israel is still running and the, And in order for the prophecies to be fulfilled, the church needs to get out of here so that Jesus, so that God can deal with Israel again, the real apple of his eye and his real interest uh, in redemptive history. So, so this is why the rationale of the rapture is essential to dispensationalism. You have to get the church out of the way so that God can properly deal with Israel again at the end of the church age. So the, the pre-tribulation rapture and then all of the rest of the prophetic narrative for Israel happens after the rapture. And this is all, you know, going back to that quote from Ironside, this is all completely foreign to church history. I didn't have time to put it together tonight, but if you're interested in this study, um, a, a quick perusal of those 
those passages that Mr. Ironside says don't include any of this, uh, especially in, in the church fathers, there, there's no sense in which anybody's talking about this until the 1900, until the 1800s. And so that's a real problem. Um, <clears throat> this question of, of the New Testament use of Old Testament, this is really what, where the dispensationalist argument uh, lives or dies. Um, there's a, there's a, a dramatic attempt by dispensationalists to put New Testament citations, of the Old Testament, in an Old Testament context, or let me say more fairly, in an unchanged context. So, so it's interesting to listen to dispensationalists talk about Acts when, when, when Joel is cited. And one has to wonder if this isn't if this isn't a, a, a reframing of what Joel means, then why does, why does Peter quote the sun being darkened and the moon turned to blood? Um, we, that's not happening at Pentecost. At least there's no indication that it is. Uh, all this, this whole passage being cited is being contextualized now by Pentecost. And, and all of these things are. Uh, I mean, every one of these, Rachel weeping for her children is, is taken out of its immediate context and put into this new context. So, so the dispensationalists do not have what we who are non-dispensationalists have, a way of understanding prophecy as a now and not yet. Um, we generally recognize Old Testament prophecies to be immediately uh, applicable. They, they have some merit in, in their immediate context, the prophets are using them in their day for their time, but they're also indicating something future and not yet, that, that there'll be another or more broad fulfillment of that in a future context that is under a different premise. This is, this is anti-dispensationalist, that view of, of Old Testament prophecy. When you have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, you have heard, but, but I say... Uh, the dispensationalist has to frame this in a future context because they can't allow Jesus to be reframing Old Testament narrative. Um, even Jesus isn't allowed to recontextualize Old Testament passages. The Mosaic law has to be in place because after the tribulation, there's going to be a new temple and a new sacrificial system, and all these things are essential to the dispensationalist paradigm. And so for Jesus to be Re reconstituting the mosaic law around his teaching and changing and abrogating it is is unfathomable from a dispensationalist perspective jesus can't be changing anything even though in that in that discourse he's specifically quoting moses and repudiating him moses said whosoever shall put away his wife let him give her a right in divorcement. But I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, same for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries her that's put away commits adultery. That, that's a specific change that happens with Jesus. I, I don't know, honestly, how the dispensationalists rationalize this. I mean, I know generally how they do, but in that specific instance, why Jesus would need a provision for divorce in the in the millennium is, is hard to understand. I don't, I don't know. I don't even know what they do with that. So what this leaves us with from the dispensationalist perspective is that anything that has to do with the kingdom 
in the New Testament is understood as either uh, millennial or about the physical nation of Israel, and and that that kind of shifts depending on 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 the ambition of looking at that passage. So they'll contextualize any kind of kingdom notions as either talking about Israel or the millennium, depending on on how they're trying to use it. But the now and present kingdom of Jesus, uh, you know, him establishing his his nation here and now among us is is another notion that would be anti-dispensational. There's a huge problem with dispensationalism, um, especially in its modern context, because it focuses so heavily on modern day Israel and and modern day Israel, um, quite frankly, is is built by for and through the Ashkenazi European Jews. But the problem with that is that um, so all of this kind of impetus of what God's doing in the world has just to do basically with this one family of Jews from Europe, this one line of the Jews. But Jewry all throughout the world has been dispersed since the diaspora. So, so you know, you can read about this in all kinds of sources. The, the, the dispersion of the Jews under the Roman occupation and, and destruction of Jerusalem into the known world is well-documented. I mean, the number of communities that spread throughout the Roman Empire is, is vast. And so, so we have this very narrow focus on modern-day secular Israel, and, and, and we'll, we'll wait on Israel. I'll, I'll bring that up in a minute. But we have this, just this one line, basically, of Jews from Europe the Ashkenazi, but we find Jewish communities all throughout, all throughout the world. Here you have uh, that, that black and white picture is the Yemeni Jews. There's a large community of, of Jews in Yemen. Uh, on the right, there's an old picture of a Persian Jewish community. Uh, in the bottom, you have Ethiopian Jews. These are not Ashkenazi. They're, they're a whole different set of Jews. So if we're, as the dispensationalists want us to, if we're going to highlight modern-day Israel and what God's doing with physical Israel, and that's essential for us to understand prophecy and modern events and everything that's happening, why, are we, why, why have we focused just on the Ashkenazi? Maybe it's the Yemeni Jews that are going to carry out these prophecies or the Persian Jews or the Ethiopian Jews, or we don't know, or, 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 or what, you know, there's a kind of an artificial distinction that modern day Israel is all that we're supposed to focus on in these dispensationalists hopes of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So there's a big problem with even understanding who is a Jew and where are they coming from and where are they now and what are they doing? Let's let's continue down that track a little bit. These dispensationalist Christians, especially in Europe and later in America, are are really the propagators of the early Zionist movement. There's a whole history of of Christian Zionism, um, especially from from Britain. Uh, the Balfour Declaration is an important document in the establishment of a homeland for the European Jews. I think 
if you if anyone's interested in this is, issue, it's very much worth looking into early Christian Zionism and early Jewish Zionism, because um, the the world that we live in was <laughs> was not assumed. Uh, there's um I, I quote here in this first in this first paragraph an author, a Jewish scholar by the name Anita Shapira, and she says in a book, the idea of the Jews returning to their ancient homeland as the first step to world redemption seems to have originated among a specific group of evangelical English Protestants that flourished in England in the 1840s, and they passed this notion onto Jewish circles. Jewish circles who, at least in Britain, were very opposed to the expatriation of European Jews to a new homeland. It's really the events of the Second War that galvanized the early Christian Zionist movement to some kind of real practical um, political movement. It's the establishment of the UN and how to deal with the, the Jews from the Holocaust that galvanizes the, the Christian and Jewish Zionist movement. There were quite a, there were several different ideas about where a homeland for the Jews could be found, and and in no small part due to the dispensationalist evangelical Christians, uh, Palestine becomes the main focus for where the Jewish homeland should be. The problem is that there were already people who lived in Palestine. Um, I don't know, we're already at 40 minutes, so I don't, I, 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 what I would probably like to do is, is maybe do a follow-up uh, to, this, to this meeting on specifically Zionism and the establishment of the secular nation state of Israel. But in brief, 1948 is the year of the establishment of that state. And I grew up in dispensationalist circles with the prophecy clock beginning in 1948, because the generation that saw the restoration of Israel was supposed to see the Messiah come. And so 48 starts the generation clock. Well, that generation clock is all but gone. Uh, we're quick going to be at the place where nobody was alive then uh, for the establishment of Israel. So then, you know, since then, since the prophecy clock started for the dispensationalists with the re return of Israel, uh, a nation state of Israel, um, everything in world geopolitics is oriented around this prophetic narrative. Like there's this really fine parsing of every event. Uh, there's whole evangelical news uh, and media organizations that are picking apart uh, present geopolitical conditions from the dispensationalist lens to figure out who is the Antichrist and where is the treaty going to come and who is, and, and, you know, there's a whole wing of this dispensationalist Zionism that's evaluating, you know, who, you know, the number 666 and whose, whose name adds up to that and, and which events are the harbingers of the last days and when is the, when is the, the rapture going to happen? See, another component to dispensationalism is what is known as the eminent return of Christ. In other words, for the dispensationalists, nothing has to happen for the second, for the, for the rapture to happen. So the,
the seven years of tribulation has to happen for the advent, but that could start at literally any moment. So dispensationalist Christians are waiting maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow for the rapture to happen, and then the, the tribulation will happen. There's all kinds of problems with that theologically. The notion that um, that Christians, the Christian church who is born to suffer and bear crosses should leave when world persecution begins, all kinds of things, not to mention uh, millennialism, but even within the premillennialist framework, there's all kinds of problems with the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, most namely that it's not enumerated anywhere in the scriptures. But, but all that to say, the clock starts with the dispensationalist Psalm 48. After then, you have, you know, you have these famous books talking from American evangelical dispensationalists talking about um, how these events are going to play out, late great planet Earth and um, a whole litany of books uh, come out describing world events from the terms of Antichrist and the treaty with Israel and how all this is going to happen. The Left Behind series begins, and and everyone is just analyzing every name. I grew up like that. I think this is what was intriguing to me uh, was Revelations as a young boy. To me, was like a mystery novel, um, and and it was playing out in diplomatic international relations like a choose your own adventure. Like you could look at the newspaper and try to sort a way that this meant that. And that kind of like code breaking, looking at eschatology, it at least to a certain kind of person, it's really attractive. The other thing that that happens from these notions, let me talk about doctrine just for a minute and how it applies to all of this. If you go back to the 1800s, you know, sometimes we we talk about doctrinal positions and their unintended consequences. So let's take, for instance, um, how 19th century evangelicalism is dealing with the law of Moses. Uh, and even earlier than that, something like the Sabbath and, and trying to transpose the Sabbath regulations for the Jews on Saturday to the, a day of rest on Sunday. And, and nobody thinks about what the potentially dangerous ramifications of that are until you start seeing the fruit of these ideas creating this construct where the law of Moses under dispensational ideas under Darby are still in effect for the whole world. And instead of making the break that, that the first church is making and saying that Jewish law was for the Jews and the church is here now and the church is what God was after through Christ – to make his people across the whole world, not just in Israel. Without making that division, you, you get this two-track idea that God has two peoples. There's the, his people, the church, who are the disciples of Christ, and his people who are the children of Abraham. And that two-track idea goes along with these, these kinds of wrong views of the law, of the Sermon on the Mount, of all these things. So where that fast forward all the way now to the 20, 21st century. And I grew in growing up in churches, uh, we would have these little prophecy conferences, you know, and some guy would come out and talk about how uh, there's farmers in, in, in Arkansas who are breeding red heifers. So that as soon as the peace treaty happens on the temple Mount, 
the the Jewish rabbis have a spotless red heifer to sacrifice and dedicate the altar. Like this is real stuff. Like people are really this into it. And and in minutia of detail, but also in very big political causes, the money that's spent by by America in general, but but American evangelicals in establishing, supporting, and and keeping propped up the nation state of Israel has no small connection to these exact ideas. Like the situation happening in the Middle East is directly tied to these evangelical notions of the world. And, and the impact of that can't be understated. Um, all the way up to today, uh, I don't know if you remember, but, but Trump uh, moved the, the embassy to Jerusalem. And he declared that Jerusalem would be the capital for the Israeli state and the diplomatic capital. Now that was something that, that, that Israel had wanted for a long time because Jerusalem is like Berlin. It's, it's kind of split East and West, at least it, it physically was um, earlier. Now it just culturally is, but um but when Trump moves the moves the 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 embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, this is signaling from the evangelical Americans to the Israelis, we're on board with this whole thing. Like this is the idea that 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 Jerusalem has been for a long time in the international community an international city or some kind of thing like that, a place where where religiously, culturally, and ethnically, there's supposed to be a, a, a merger where, where Jews and Christians and Muslims can all be in the same place and, and not be exerting their right over each other has been the ideal of the UN ever from, the, from its inception. And it's never worked. Uh, the, the recent intifada, in fact, um, what just happened a few weeks ago came specifically from two things. Um, Oh, I'm getting I'm getting too far into Zionism. Forty six minutes. I'm just looking here, trying to figure out how far we can go down that road. It's important. It was an important thing that Trump moved diplomatic relations from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It was signaling to the world that this was not a a, a hopeless cause for Israel. And our present, the present conflict may even have direct ties to those actions. Whenever we talk about um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it very rarely starts with a discussion of what happened in 1948 and where the expatriation of European Jews into Palestine comes from. The, the, the conversation usually starts with the assumption of the Israeli right to the Jewish right of return over the promised land. So, so whenever you enter into a conversation about what's happening in, in Palestine and Israel, the assumption is that the Israeli state belonged there, that it's, it's theirs and they're just defending themselves. I, 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 I was speaking with Finney about um, having this meeting. It's something I've wanted to, to, 
to put together for some time because it's a it's a it's a cause that I feel personally passionate about for two reasons. I was deceived by dispensationalism uh, all throughout my youth, um, and it, it it was it. I recognized that there's some very dangerous implications from it. It really messes up how you view Jesus's teachings, the kingdom of God, God's redemptive plan. It really shifts and alters a lot of important concepts for Christianity. So I have my own kind of like personal sense of betrayal, but there's also a real horrifying situation that's happening for Palestinians. I put up here this chart uh, on table 12 operation protective edge. That was the 2014 intifada under, under Barack Obama. Um, And you can see there what defense of Israel looks like from the perspective of Palestine. There's 1,600 civilians killed in the 2014 Intifada and six Israelis. There's 550 children killed. This was when, um, this is probably in 2014 is when the Palestinian issue became, to me, uh, a very important issue about oppression uh, and and the destruction of, of people and their lives. 550 children were killed in the 2014 Intifada. 18,000 homes were destroyed, 200 places of worship, 285 kindergartens were damaged or destroyed, and 73 medical facilities in Gaza were bombed and destroyed. And we saw a similar trajectory just in the 11 days that the last Intifada happened a few weeks ago. Now, when I spoke with Finney about this, he cautioned me, and it's a valid caution and i and i appreciate it and i hear it and i hear it often when i talk about this issue is that um, matthew are you pro hamas no no i'm not pro hamas uh i'm not pro plo i'm not pro war i'm not pro palestinian state over israeli state but what i am is i'm interested in Christians approaching world events from a Christocentric perspective. And what I think that that means is that whoever is killing women and children is automatically the bad guy, regardless of what the political situation is, regardless of the borders, regardless of the controversy, regardless of the politics involved in the situation, whoever is killing the most children and women and innocent civilians automatically is the bad guy and that's irrespective of any other conditions and i think that's a simple christian perspective i think that that what flows out of the christian community ought to be the the ancient call of the prophets and the modern call of the apostles to to judge for the widow and the orphan and the oppressed like that is that's not lost on Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah's generation. That's a call for the church today to be involved in where there are widows, where there are orphans, where there is oppression. We have something to say. And and when we consider this situation, regardless of the politics, regardless of the the government bureaucracies involved or the military bureaucracies involved, there's something to be said about 
these situations. I think another Christian perspective of, of the modern crisis is that the Christian ought to be able, we ought to be the best at empathy. Okay. So, so the Christian perspective ought to create the, the most comprehensive empathy that's possible. What that means is that we should be able to put ourselves in other shoes. Now, this is not just uh, for the sake of morals. This is because the Christ himself is the ultimate empathizer. Like our whole religious tradition is based on the incarnation. It's based on God himself being able to identify with man and not just man, not the highest of men, but the lowest of men. And so we should expect that where God is at work in a people, he is creating a capacity for empathy. So a capacity for empathy says, when I look at these conflicts, when I look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I ask myself, what would it feel like to be an Israeli in this conflict? What would it look like to be a Palestinian in this conflict? And to empathize through those perspectives. If we do those exercises, I think that there are some really clear and present conclusions about how we should feel and where we should be concerned and where our sympathy should lie and what we should be concerned about and what we should want to do if we have any capacity or ability. Our prayers, our attentions, our energies, our finances and resources, and our concern. That, that, that exercise of empathy should be guiding and directing how we think about these things before geopolitics does, before eschatological theories do, before anything else, human empathy should be what's, what our primary motivation in understanding these situations. Um, let me just close with a few more slides, <clears throat> two more in, 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 to be exact. What you have here uh, on the left, I think you're seeing the screen the same way I am, is a, 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 a basically modern political map of, of the Middle East. You see Egypt in the bottom left and Syria in the top right. Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Israel, and Lebanon. Um, that's, a, that's a current uh, map of, of the Middle East. If you shift your attention to the top right, this is an ancient map of Israel, and you'll see the red line there is from Numbers 34, and the blue line is from Ezekiel 47. Those are, those are the political borders from Numbers and Ezekiel. Now, if you go down, so that, that was, that was the, the borders traced out within those texts. But dispensationalism wants to establish the promise of Abraham. So if we're talking about what, what according to the dispensationalists, God want to do with the Middle East as a geopolitical nation of Israel, it's actually much, much broader. What, what the dispensationalists want to bring about uh, and actively are participating politically, economically, and in other ways um, to bring about is an Abrahamic land covenant. So what that means is in the bottom left corner, you see the Nile traced out in red and you see the Euphrates traced out in red in the top right. 
that's that's the borders from the Abrahamic land covenant. What the dispensationalists want is not just um, it. We need to be clear so that we understand motivations. Like if we're if we're going to talk about these conflicts, like particularly in the West Bank and Gaza, we have to understand what the dispensationalists claim is. Their claim is that not just Palestine, but that large part, the whole Sinai Peninsula, that large part of Egypt, down into Saudi Arabia, all the way up across Syria to the Euphrates, is the land covenant, and that Israel is going to be within those borders. That that that's what God will establish in the in the end as the nation of Israel because it has never been that and that's what was promised and so so since those can't change according to dispensationalist ideology this is where israel is headed so imagine if that's your perspective and you're an american evangelical or a european evangelical for that matter and the discussions are happening about um about the palestinian conflict well According to the past, according to the dispensationalist ideas of of Zionism, the Palestinians have no right to be there. In fact, the Palestinians are a cursed people. They're they're the Edomites. They're the the ones that God is against. If all of those things stand exactly as they did when they were written, then then there's no mercy to be had from the evangelical Christian community towards Arabs, towards Palestinians, towards anyone in that region, because those are God's people and that's God's land. And so we'll have to do whatever we have to do to get rid of them so that we can establish the nation of Israel so that the second advent can come or so that we can set up the stage for the rapture or all these things. And this is, you know, this is where we're, we're changing from, from a, a biblical theological framework into a manifestation of real events on earth. Like there's, there's a direct tie between these events and Christian theology that stems from the middle to late 19th century. These, this blood being spilled, this, these horrors, these tragedies, these human costs are being paid in service to an ideology, uh, not just an ide- ideology. There's certainly all kinds of motiv- motives for the secular nation of America and the secular nation of Israel and all kinds of situations with the Arab states that are at play. But the ideology behind this from, from an American perspective, from an evangelical perspective, all has to do with God's people getting their land back. And so when we see insensitivity towards these images of dead children and grieving women and fathers weeping over their children's lives and dead doctors and blown up schools and blown up buildings, and this is being all run here in the American evangelical churches through a framework of dispensationalism that says that's what's supposed to happen. Well, how, if that's what's supposed to happen, are you ever going to experience the empathy of Christ for what's happening in these people's lives? Just one kind of cap on that. Um, I've, I've tried to, 
in in the recent weeks in the discussions about the recent violence that's happened in in Gaza, try to art. What I'm trying to get to, and what I think these conversations from our people should be about, is this root issue of empathy. Um, if we have just a little bit of historic knowledge, and we say, "Well, where is Israel coming from in '48 and '67? What are the events that brought them there?" If you have just a cursory knowledge of 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 what leads up to these events, and you don't just assume that the secular nation of Israel should, could, and would be there, then you start the question from a different perspective, but maybe, maybe that's not granted. But, but how does it feel to be a Palestinian Christian or a Palestinian Arab? How does it feel to watch your home blown up? How does it feel to, if you're that man, what does your life look like going forward? And I feel like that cuts through a lot of the, well, are you, are you saying that you support Hamas? Are you saying that, that Hamas isn't sending rockets into Israel? No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when I read history and I read, for instance, the American occupation of native territories and the, American, the early American colonial persecution of native people, uh, the, the oppression and violence against native communities that's that's what frames that time in history and in in retrospect looking back um, america were the bad guys in the western expansion against the native americans not just americans but the french canadians and catholics in south america these imperialist powers and their their crusades of oppression and murder and destruction are what stands out in the historical narrative. Now, when I look at that same epoch of history, I also see atrocities happening. I see, you know, I see and I read Native American raids on settlers where they're scalping children and women and horrible things happening. And I don't have to condone that in order to say that the American expansion and, and the perceived divine right to take that land was wrong. This is how I think this is the kind of framework that allows us to exercise empathy without trying to create a political alliance with terrorism or Arab states or Hamas or the secular nation of Israel. What should be at the root of all of our considerations in these things is how does it feel to be there? What is life like for that, for those people on both sides of those battle lines? And, and how do we effectively care? How do we create a space where there's some kind of potential for peacemaking, for setting things right, for easing hostility, for healing old wounds? These are the questions that I think should pertain to the, to the uh, sincere Christian community about, about these current political issues. Okay. Um, let me stop my screen. I, I, that's an hour. That's plenty of time. Um, and I hope, that, I hope that you understood my point there. 
in looking at this whole situation from a from a meta perspective and trying to understand the factors that go way back um, and how to how to relate them to current situations and how we should be thinking about these issues. Thanks, brother Matthew. Do you do you mind if we just do a quick Q and A sure. with the group here, and maybe any any comments from anybody, any one of the brothers that are listening, or anyone? Absolutely. Anyone yeah. Let's let's take ten minutes and do that. Yeah. Any any comments? Yeah. I'll I'll make this is Finney. I'll make a, a comment here. Thanks for your your message. I appreciate it. One of the one of the things that that people don't realize with the the way that the Old Testament is handled in the New, it, it, there's an array of, of factors. So, for example, sometimes there's there's cancellations, like is mentioned. You mentioned about circumcision, but there's also enlargements, and and the enlargements I think are, are some of the most interesting ones. So, in in Romans. 4.13, Paul is writing, and he says, for the promise that he, he is Abraham, would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to a seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And what I think is just so fascinating is that Paul has clearly taken the, the, the promise that was made to Abraham there and, and now understood that to be the entire world. And so it's, it's an expansion that the dispensationalists just miss. Now, of course, Jesus says as much, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. You know, you have, you have passages like that. And, and, and for that reason, you don't need to stress out or be concerned about any particular plot of land, whether it's historic Israel or any other part of land. So I, I just wanted to, to throw that out as a, just a, an important hermeneutical observation that that notion of expansion Sabbath is in that category as well, that, you know, that we're to enter into the Sabbath rest, which it becomes almost a holistic way of life as opposed to the, the very narrow Sabbatarian type restrictions that the people have gotten hung up on. That's, that's one, one point. Well, this would, this would be one that, that it'd be interesting for you to hear comments on. What a lot of people don't realize as well is, is that a lot of the, particularly on the Israeli side, founders, and certainly today, the, the leaders are, are very secular, and many of them are atheists. Right. And in fact, like a lot of the key people are, are atheists. And there's a, there's a small minority of people who realize that dispensationalist claim that God was going to, you know, re reconstitute Israel and all that, the way that they understand it, you know, pull them out of exile. You know, those descriptions in the Bible are are descriptions of people calling out on God, repenting. There's there's actual warning there. What what has never made sense about modern Israel, if one is going to appeal to Deuteronomy and places like that, is just the utter godlessness. I mean, you think Tel Aviv. It's one of the most sexually uh, degraded places on earth. I mean, it's just every manner of wildness is there. And, and of course, you know, the media will 
will show the the small slice of Orthodox rabbis that actually live in tension with with the, the atheists and and the people who are there. I had a friend of mine who lived in Israel, and he used to he used to say that there's more Jews in Brooklyn than there are in Israel, which is probably true. <laughs> that that you know it's a it's just a it's a weird place, and the notion that somehow it represents this like ah oh, this is finally God's people are crying out and for you know looking to the Torah and going back to the one true God and repenting and all that you just think like totally out of touch with what is occurring both historically or or in the present so I'd love to hear if you have comments especially on that second point I do that's a it's a really important point it should have been a slide on its own but I, I knew I was pushing time but I, I always refer to Israel as the secular nation state of Israel because because it is exactly that. And, and in fact, there, there's the, the Hasidic community uh, lives, like Finney said, in, a, in an uneasy tension with that secular state. But there are specific groups of, a small number of them, but specific groups of Jews who reject the nation, uh, the secular nation of Israel, because they are, their reading of the Torah is that you can't have a secular Israel. It has to be a theocracy and it has to be orchestrated around the Mosaic Covenant and obedience to it, or it's not actually Israel. Um, the, the, the religious community is, the, the orthodox religious community is seen as kind of a pariah or problem to the government. And it's worth noting that the new prime minister is the first um, of, of Israel's leaders, prime ministers, who is a religious religiously observant person at least he was raised that way he's actually a settler and the issue of settlements is a huge component to what the problems are in israel with the palestinians the settlements if you want to look at this at this issue with any uh sincerity or seriousness you need to analyze the settlements and what's happening with jewish settlers within palestinian land because it's just a slow crawl taking of the land of more of the land the little bit of land that's been left for the palestinians um by the sake for for from religious zealots who are being honest with their claims that all of this land is ours and we should take it and to the settlers the israeli state is getting in their way so it's an uneasy tension back and forth the arabs are enemies of both the state and the settlers so there's there's a common enemy but but there's a not easy tension between settlers and um, and the state. And now the new prime minister, if if it goes through, if there's a vote of confidence, I think on Sunday, uh, will be actually someone who grew up in a Jewish settlement in Palestinian territory. That's that's new. So we sh- we could expect Netanyahu has said that he his government uh, will be more friendly to the settlers than any Israeli government before. Uh, I have to imagine that someone who grew up in the settlement is going to be even more um, proactive in favor of Jewish settlements in Palestinian territory. Matthew, I'll I'll just ask a a quick question here. Sometimes I understand theologies in terms of ditches. So there's one ditch on this side, one ditch on the other side, and then, you know, there's somewhere in the middle that's usually the right... (laughs) the right stance. And if you were to try to map that on to dispensationalism as maybe like this is the first ditch and then on the other side, here's the other ditch. 
but usually we find ourselves, this is where I found myself somewhere in the middle of the two. Is there any useful comparisons in, in your mind that fit that, that category? Is there an opposite of dispensationalism and then somewhere in between? Uh, uh, dispensational is such an eschatologically bound concept that I, I don't know that there's a, there's a Christian corollary. There's certainly, there's certainly a liberal political corollary. Like if you put this in political terms and you see American evangelicals as the pro-Israeli party, um, you can make a pairing of an opposite ideology in, in, in liberal American ideologies where, you know, this pro-PLO, um, pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian to, this, to the extent of wanting the destruction of Israel would be politically the opposite. I don't know about theologically. Do you know, Finn, is there a theological... Yeah, I mean, the, the close, it's a good question. The, the closest to that would be something like some of these theonomic post-millennial reconstructions. So right. there's, there's groups of people that, okay, so, so dispensationalism, as you heard from Matthew Stock, is about dividing and slicing and dicing history into these different periods. And, and there, there's too much discontinuity and there's too much artificial boundaries such that the church does not inherit the promises made to Israel, right? Like in, in a nutshell, like that's, that's a way of thinking about dispensationalism is that it's this, an overly fine partitioning where, you know, Darby famously, I mean, Schofield rather in the Schofield's first Bible basically says that the Sermon on the Mount is for a future age. And that's the type of, of over compartmentalization that happens. So, so what is the opposite? The opposite is, and thankfully this is not yet common, uh, but there are groups, they're usually some sort of, of reformed Calvinist. What, and what they teach is that we should go back to living under the laws of Old Testament Israel. So, for example, they would say things like there should be the death penalty for a child who, who um, hit, strikes his parents or the death penalty for homosexuality. Uh, all of those laws, they want to bring them back. It, it, it sounds very odd, um, but there's there's an, a growing chorus of people who who are advocating for that, and they they they, they seemingly can't recognize that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and, and thus transposed the whole system onto us, and so there's like too much blurring there. Now, like I said, that's not as common as, as dispensationalism, uh, for sure. It, it's, it's never had anything like the Scofield Reference Bible or something like that. And it tends to be, like I said, pretty diehard Calvinists who, who go that way. Now, you will find on a, on a more moderate note, you, you'll find people like Abraham Kuyper and some of these folks who were trying to he was prime minister in the Netherlands, long deceased, but who will, who will try to not do anything as extreme as the theonomic post-millennialists, but nonetheless will, will advocate that the, the realm of the church is government and that like we, we ought to be 
like infiltrating all these different areas. And so that, that is actually much more common. And, you know, it's, it's obviously to be contrasted with a two kingdoms type theology there. And so in, in some ways you can, you can think about, and I'll overstate my, my case here, but you can, you can almost think about some of these attempts to sort of Christianize governments under the so-called Judeo-Christian value set, right, as, as a milder form of those theonomic eras and, and those theonomic systems. And so I, I would be very cautious about, about those types of ideas. So that, that's, that's probably the closest thing as there is to the opposite pole. Thanks. It's helpful. Any, any other questions before we sort of break off here? Yeah, thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that. Um, I, the whole dispensational thing. The, the one thing I'll bring out maybe on this whole spectrum thing, um, the, as I ponder the enigma of fundamentalism and what that did with dispensationalism and everything, I would say if you, have, if you could throw them a bone, which it's hard for me to do, but if you can throw them a bone, they, the modernism that was blatant in America before fundamentalism and dispensationalism was real, you know, and it was rampant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as crazy as it is, I see that some of these dispensationalists, weird science, I mean, literally, you know, they'd come in their churches and when a time when the Bible, nobody believed the Bible was really meaning anything. The fundamentalist said, not only does the Bible mean everything, let me show you this chart and I can tell you what happens on Tuesday, you know, and right. it, it gave a, a sense that I wonder sometimes if, if we have an appreciation for our Bible, that they rescued us from the modernists. That said, it's bizarre. And, 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 and I, I would say that even in, in like what I see at the seminary level, dispensationalism is kind of dead. Yeah. Um, I asked, I asked some of the, uh, the other, you know, conservative evangelicals and stuff like that. I said, is, is there any leading figure in dispensationalism today? And no one can really come up with any. Um, it's more this, this Zionism of anything, the thing that you're hitting on here is still probably the most pertinent hangover of, of the whole dispensationalism world. But, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing, but it's interesting in my, in my upbringing eighties, it was still very big. Obviously you, you, you hit all those, you know, uh, novels and everything, but now neo reformed has kind of taken over the, uh, the, the conservative evangelical world. But, but yeah, I, I think that you hit a good, an interesting point here with the whole Zionism point of it all. But yeah, but so I, I'll just say this, that I think that I don't, the fundamentalism gave us a lot of headaches. Um, but I, I would say that of taking the word of God and saying, wow, it really means something. So if you're putting on a spectrum, I would say one thing they do well is to believe that we really do have answers to our life in the Bible, where the modernist, it was just getting so, you know, uh, theoretical that it hardly meant anything anymore. So, so maybe if looking for a ditch, I don't know, just on what the, the question, but yeah, but excellent. I appreciate all the work you put on it. Uh, I, I appreciate that, Dean. I think that you're right. It, it, going back to Zach's question, I would put, I would put dispensationalism in a fundamentalist ditch with a, with a few other ideologies and the counter, the other side problem is, is modern relativism. Exactly. Yeah. I would say as a kid that grew up in dispensationalism, there's the, the problem. And, and I think the cautionary tale is that 
when you spin these yarns about red heifers and all this stuff happening for, for any of us who were thoughtful kids watching all that play out, the, the problems with it were manifest and obvious and, and the inclination of many of us who grew up in fundamentalism was, was to potentially reject everything whole hog. Like when, when you see these things happening and being drawn out, you know, when you watch, um, maybe if you're political and you're interested in the Palestinian conflict, when you see what, what the impact that the Christian church has had on that issue and you reject the initial premise, it can lead to a rejection of the whole cause. And I think that's true. Absolutely. I say all the time, if, if the only Christianity I knew was the Christianity I grew up with, I would never, ever be a Christian. I would have rejected it wholesale. There is actually just just one little footnote to that. There's so like the the traditional dispensationalism has fallen away. However, the there's something called progressive dispensationalism. Yes. So some, some people you know the name Daryl Bach, or Bruce Ware. Um, those are both pretty pretty big names, and it's a it's a softer version. So so there there are still forms that are are being propagated in seminaries today they're not quite as goofy Robust. And as, yeah and and as like the right you know the heifer example that you used is i think they're they're recognizing that it was just way too too much of an over overdone reading to the point of you know even even some people saying that the new covenant that's described in jeremiah and ezekiel is the new covenant for israel you know not, i mean like just Things, things like that that don't make any sense that the progressive dispensationalists will will uh, repudiate. So they, those forms are are still out there, and they do actually still call themselves dispensationalists, but they do intentionally use that term progressive dispensationalists. I think they're trying to get away from the specificity. Like I, I mean, I as a kid growing up in the '80s and '90s, we had four different candidates for the Antichrist. The last one was Kofi Annan because his name added up to six six six. Like. How, how, as a kid, how many antichrists can you hear about whose name equals six six six, and then the world just keeps going? It just doesn't. It's not sustainable. Well, Matthew, do you have any any concluding thoughts before we sort of and and or go into a breakout session here? Uh, I, I just I, I appreciate the opportunity to look at these things. I think it's important that we that we can take a from time to time that we can take a, a, a kind of a wide panoramic view of some of these, some of these important Christian evangelical doctrines and what the impact of them has been in the world and assess what is Christian thought doing? What it does to me um, is it makes me want to be careful because I feel like schools of thought, they run in a direction that's not perceived by the adherence of those schools of thought. And, and you almost have to have a retrospective analysis to look at where did this school lead people to? And it makes me want to be careful about the way that we think about the, the, the doctrines that we espouse and the ideologies that we assimilate to and, and be very mindful of consequences that we can't see from the way that we think and the, and the, and the ideas that we build our faith out of. Brother Finney, can I tap you on the shoulder to close us out in prayer? And, and we'll just, I, I don't know if we can also just lift up the, the rays and in prayer tonight. I know they had a, a rough day, so we, I think it would be really good to, 
just pray for them as, as they go through their day today and, and following weeks. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'd love to. Let's pray. Father, we, we do, as we contemplate this this topic, we, we see the, the power of ideas and, and full bloom. Um, truly, theology has, has shaped the world, um, shaped nations and ideas and attitudes and and in this case, millions of people have been affected by, by exegetical methods and approaches that were, were seemingly arcane. I pray that this would give us a renewed motivation to draw people back to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That faith which is, is enduring and not, not shifting or novel as, as uh, we heard dispensationalism is an example of novelty. We, we pray that uh, you would help us to be really grounded and to, to, not, to not dismiss the realm of these ideas into, into something that is, is just for the, the quote theologians, but something that we can, we can really appreciate and wrestle with and, and do our best to articulate we do want to pray for the Rays as they're as they're uh, had some bad news today and are struggling there. We ask that you would bless their home, Clark and Alyssa, and and the children, and ask that you would you would give them uh, a sense of, of hope through this difficult hour. We mourn with them, we grieve with them, and we also ask that through this morning that they would find their refuge in you. Uh, we pray for everyone on this call and ask that you would give us a good remainder of the evening that we can put our hope and our trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, brothers. Good night, good night everyone. Good night. Thank you, Matthew.